What's happening in the world right now, coming up on NTD News. First, we bring you our top stories. The Assistant Secretary of State this week condemns a recent espionage scandal. However, he advocates for the program in question to continue. With presidential candidate Ron DeSantis in Iowa today, we hear reactions from voters and some analysis on how DeSantis can overcome former President Donald Trump's sizable polling lead. Nebraska becomes the 49th state to have a school choice program. It could give families with limited means more options for where their children are educated. China's economic rebound from the pandemic is weak. Analysts say prior Chinese lockdowns were too stringent, and that's weighing on recovery. NATO searching for a new leader amid the Ukraine war. Learn more about who some of the contenders are and what to look out for. Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Our top news is on the Assistant Secretary of State. This week, he's commenting on a recent espionage scandal, calling it disturbing. However, he said the program in question should continue. Here are his arguments. Assistant Secretary of State Brett Holmgren on Tuesday condemned abuses of Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA. It was disturbing and unfortunate. Um, But... The fact that those came to light was because of the reporting and the transparency requirements. FISA Section 702 is a provision in U.S. law that allows for intelligence gathering of foreign agents operating outside the U.S. However, the FBI allegedly often abused Section 702. According to a FISA court-ordered report, this abuse peaked in 2021. At the time, the FBI had allegedly used Section 702 to make over 3.3 million illegal queries of U.S. citizens. After 2021, the FBI reportedly made internal reforms, but a court opinion unsealed this month noted the FBI searched databases for information on as many as hundreds of thousands of Americans without proper justification. However, Holmgren argues in favor of the diplomatic and national security benefits of the program, saying 702 serves to to protect the United States from foreign threats, from terrorists and cyber attacks, to espionage, and weapons of mass destruction. He added that the section is important is because since the founding of our republic, intelligence has advanced American interests in the world. Under the law as written, Section 702 does not authorize directly gathering information attached to U.S. citizens, but it does allow intelligence agencies to target suspected foreign agents But the FBI has been accused of using FISA Section 702 for purely domestic concerns, including hunting down those who participated in the January 6th Capitol breach. The section is set to expire on December 31st if Congress doesn't reauthorize it. Moving on to politics, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis kicked off his presidential campaign in Iowa. The governor held his first campaign event in the early primary state last night. Here are the details. Florida governor and presidential candidate Ron DeSantis made his first campaign stop at an evangelical church just outside Des Moines, Iowa on Tuesday. It marked the beginning of a busy week that will take him to 12 cities in three early primary states, Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina. American decline is not inevitable. It is a choice, and we must choose a new direction for our country. We must choose a path that will lead to a revival of American greatness. In his speech, DeSantis first summarized what he thinks are problems with the Biden administration. 
They include the border crisis, high crime rates, so-called medical authoritarianism, cultural Marxism, and high inflation. We must restore sanity to our nation. We need fiscal and economic sanity. Stop pricing hardworking Americans out of a good standard of living through inflationary borrow, print, and spend policies. Embrace American-produced energy so we can be completely energy independent. The governor then went on to list what he considers his achievements in Florida, including the ban of ESG investments, DEI training, illegal immigrant sanctuary cities, COVID-19 vaccine mandates, and abortions beyond six weeks. While I'm proud of all that, maybe the thing that we're most proud of in Florida is that we have taken a very strong stand for the idea that the purpose of our schools is to educate kids, not to indoctrinate kids. And to that end, Florida has led the way by eliminating critical race theory in our K-12 schools. We're not teaching kids to hate this country or to hate each other with your tax dollars. No, we're going to teach our kids what the Constitution is all about. DeSantis didn't mention his biggest rival in the Republican primary, former President Trump, instead focusing most of his criticism on President Biden. As the first primary state, Iowa will provide an early glimpse into the Republican primary. Trump is scheduled to visit Iowa's Des Moines area on Thursday. Continuing with candidate Ron DeSantis, NTD's Daniel Monahan has analysis on what the Florida governor could do to gain ground on former President Trump. A recent Quinnipiac University poll had Trump over DeSantis by more than 30 percent. University of Texas professor Jeremy Suri says a key area for DeSantis to pull off an upset of Trump is abortion. The professor says the most likely voters in Republican primaries tend to be strongly pro-life. And Donald Trump has already tripped up on this issue. In his CNN town hall meeting, he wasn't willing to actually take a position. He was clearly wishy-washy on this. Suri says DeSantis is arguing that he will be the most consistent anti-abortion candidate, and he hopes that galvanizes conservative support, especially from evangelicals. But Suri says most polls in recent elections demonstrate that DeSantis's stance on abortion will make him less electable in a general election. According to Suri, DeSantis is also going to try to show Trump's supporters that he believes all the things Trump believes. That he's as much of a tough guy as Trump, but that he's more competent and he doesn't have the negative baggage that Trump has. The professor says DeSantis is counting on more indictments and doubts about whether Donald Trump will be able to serve as president. Meanwhile, supporters of DeSantis reacted positively to his first campaign swing as a presidential candidate in Iowa. Recently married Abby Meyer says she was undecided before his speech, but that he hit all the points that were important to her. Yes, I think he's going to go all the way. I think he understands Americans, and I think he understands um, the middle class. And so I think he's going to do an amazing job. Steve Capert believes that DeSantis has proven in Florida that he can get the job done. I think it was a great opening speech. I mean, he kind of laid out a good case for why he'd make a great president. Jack Sponenberg said he voted for Trump in 2020. But after today, really just seeing how how DeSantis is got conviction for what he wants to do for our country, he is, I am starting to stray toward his, his direction. While Ryan Kelly had some cautionary words for the DeSantis campaign. Trump's really powerful. You can't you can't dismiss him or undersell him in any way, but we've already seen that. Next stop for the Florida governor will be New Hampshire and then South Carolina. 
Trump will be right behind him. He will hold events in Iowa the day DeSantis stumps in New Hampshire, a sign the battle for the nomination is about to heat up. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. The Republican field of presidential candidates continues to expand. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie plans to run for president again. That's according to three sources familiar with his plans. They say Christie will make the announcement on Tuesday at a town hall in New Hampshire. Christie first tried to get the Republican nomination in 2016. He has been an outspoken critic of former President Trump. Representative Chris Stewart from Utah may resign from his seat before the year's end. The decision purportedly due to his wife's illness. Stewart is a U.S. Air Force veteran and a six-term lawmaker. He represents Utah's 2nd Congressional District, with Salt Lake City included. Stewart was tabled as a potential nominee for National Intelligence Chief during the Trump administration. His departure would shrink the GOP's House majority to just four seats. But then Utah is set to hold a special election in the heavily Republican district to fill the vacancy. The White House withdraws another Biden administration nominee. Ann Carlson's bid to lead the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration comes to an end. This is the third time Biden has withdrawn a nominee for a federal agency. Senator Ted Cruz was the catalyst leading to the opposition in all three cases. Cruz and all Republicans on the Senate Commerce Committee previously wrote a letter to Carlson. They were concerned that she would use the position to push climate activism, saying that would burden Americans and ultimately benefit the Chinese regime. Previously, Carlson was appointed chief counsel for the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. In emails seen by Fox, she suggests she was hired to move forward a climate agenda. But the agency's purpose is to ensure safety on the roads and prevent crashes. Carlson's nomination was opposed by oil and gas groups, as well as agricultural associations. House Republicans are set to hold FBI Director Christopher Wray in contempt of Congress. That's over an alleged criminal scheme involving President Biden during his time as vice president. I wanted to learn more about the specifics of this, so I spoke with a retired agent at the Bureau with over 20 years of experience working in undercover operations. He's also the author of the book, The Pretender, My Life Undercover for the FBI. Take a look. Please welcome Mark Ruskin, retired FBI special agent and former assistant district attorney in Brooklyn. Mark, it is great to hear from you. Great to be here, Kevin. Thanks for having me. I want to talk about the Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer, who said an FBI decision to stiff-arm Congress and hide this information from the American people is obstructionist and unacceptable. What's your reaction to this? Well, to me, this seems like a historical uh, confrontation. I've never seen or heard of a situation where you have the head of a government agency such as the FBI, uh, an investigative agency charged with enforcing the laws of the United States in, con- in a confrontation with the heads of an important uh, congressional committee. Uh, it's really uh, a precedent. Representative Bob Good has said that this is an unclassified document. So is there any reason why the FBI wouldn't hand this over? Well, what the FBI could do if it's classified and if the invest and if the congressmen don't have uh, clearance, which normally they would have clearance, is hand it over with a condition that they'd be reviewed privately for the uh, congressional investigator to determine whether or not it should be released to the public. But at the very least, it should be released to them. And this, but Good is saying that this is an unclassified document. So what would happen normally in that case? Well, typically, even if it's unclassified, if there's an ongoing investigation, the Bureau wouldn't want to reveal it 
in, so as to not tip its hand to those being investigated. However, releasing it to Congress, if it's if the congressional uh, committee members keep it to themselves, would not jeopardize the investigation. So there's no real legitimate justification for withholding it from Congress, especially on, if they make conditions. We'll see what happens at the meeting today, whether or not Ray releases it to Comer, uh, and that'll be a big, a big uh, step if it, if if they do. I see. And these whistleblower disclosures, they allege that Biden and a foreign national had a scheme to exchange money for policy decisions. Wouldn't the FBI normally be investigating things like that instead of Congress? Right. Typically, if, if the FBI is doing its job, it'll take the information from an informant or from a confidential source or a whistleblower and follow up on it on its own. Here, it, it appears that there hasn't been any uh, appropriate follow-up by the Bureau, and that, so Congress is taking up the slack, so to speak. You know, what I, what I expect to happen, what typically would happen when the Bureau doesn't want to release uh, the, a document is they redact it, and they, can, they redact it to such an extent that there's nothing left, practically. You know, that's one of the things, one of the outcomes that we could see today is release of a redacted document by the Bureau as a kind of compromise. Surely, Director Ray would know what would happen if he does not apply, comply with this subpoena. So why do you think he has chosen not to? Well, in a sense, it, it shows a certain lack of respect for Congress and perhaps a confidence that the Director Ray has that he will be backed up by the Attorney General. So if he feels that the Attorney General will back him up and the White House will back him up, he may feel that he can disregard the uh, congressional subpoenas and uh, that there will be no consequences. Interesting analysis on this. So what's next, Mark? Well, I think a lot will depend on what happens today, because if there is no release of the, uh, of the document and there's no further compromise by the Bureau with regard with uh, Comer and the congressional heads, then uh, it'll become more of a confrontation, and we'll see what if there is a subpoena, if, if the subpoena process is, continues to be uh, not followed up on, it's not going to be, it's not going to be pretty. I mean, the, the Bureau says it's already taken steps to, uh, to, uh, that we, they can't release, but it, it seems like a, uh, a pretty flimsy uh, response by the Bureau at this, by, and by the director of the FBI. Certainly a clash of the titans between Ray and Comer. Mark Ruskin, retired FBI special agent, it's always great hearing your analysis. Thank you, Kevin. Good to be here. Coming up, Alabama bans men who identify as women from competing on women's sports teams in public universities. The law also bans women from men's teams. And tech company NVIDIA now boasts a $1 trillion market value, joining only four other U.S. companies. Find out what's propelled them to the top right here on NTD News. Nebraska's governor signs legislation introducing the state's first school choice program, something supporters say will help suit the needs of students. The move means Nebraska joins 48 other U.S. states that have some form of school choice policy. 
The new law takes effect around late August or early September. It provides tax credits for scholarships with priority for children in certain circumstances. Governor Pillen said in a statement that it is a historic step forward for the state of Nebraska. People who donate to a scholarship-granting organization will be eligible to receive a dollar-for-dollar tax credit against their income tax. State Senator Luann Linehan said the new law will bring families the freedom to choose a school that best fits the child's needs. Opponents have said the measure may threaten funding for public schools. Alabama's governor signs a bill that bans men who identify as women from participating in female college sports. The bill also stops women from joining men's teams. The law applies to two-year and four-year public colleges. It aims to ensure fair competition and equal opportunities for female athletes. It expands on a similar ban implemented in 2021 for students in kindergarten through 12th grade. The legislation emphasizes the physical differences between men and women, citing advantages such as larger body size, skeletal muscle mass, and higher levels of testosterone in men. Students who have used hormone therapy are not exempt from the new ban. The bill's sponsor said no amount of hormone therapy can undo the advantages men have over women in sports. She also said forcing women to compete against men reverses decades of progress women have made for equal opportunity in athletics. Opponents see this and similar laws as placing restrictions on transgender people and as discrimination. FedEx narrowly avoids a strike from jet pilots for now. The pilots are seeking higher pay and 99% of all 6,000 of them voted in favor of a strike. FedEx told Fox Business that it's pleased with the current tentative agreement with the pilots. The pilots initiative follows similar pushes from pilots in major commercial airlines. Pilots unions are seeking higher pay and more comfortable scheduling. They are using the current pilot shortage as leverage after airlines encouraged many to retire during the COVID-19 pandemic. Delta Airlines reached a deal with pilots to raise pay by 34% over four years. Now pilots with other airlines are looking to match or beat that. Tech company NVIDIA has joined an elite club of U.S. companies boasting a $1 trillion market value. The chipmaker is one of the biggest winners of the AI boom. Entity's Andrew Thomas has more on the stock's meteoric rise. NVIDIA's stock value has tripled in less than eight months, an increase that reflects surging interest in artificial intelligence. A trillion dollars all by itself is sort of an arbitrary you know, line in the sand. But it's hard to say that it's not deserved. You know, artificial intelligence and accelerated computing is a trend that has been building for a while. The boom follows rapid advances in generative AI. The new technology can engage in human-like conversation. It can even craft jokes and poetry. I think we finally hit an inflection point where it's becoming increasingly clear that there is a real use case for this technology, and, and not just you know, even in, in large enterprises and, and in the cloud, but I mean with, with the advent of chat GPT and generative AI and large language models. Like- NVIDIA's stock price has increased roughly 240% since October far outpacing any other member of the S&P 500 index. I think it's a surprise, but not a surprise. Uh, You know, I think that the paradigm of compute is changing. Uh, They have a monopoly, uh, at least today, in terms of accelerated compute. Uh, And uh, with generative AI and large language models, it's unleashed the power, you know, of accelerated compute. The AI boom has propelled NVIDIA's value past its peers since the company supplies both hardware and software for AI. 
For now, they're on top. Right. I mean, clearly, NVIDIA, at least for now, is capturing the lion's share of the opportunity. They're, they're the ones that are there, um, as I said before, with not just the semiconductors and the parts, but the entire ecosystem that's making it, making it work. NVIDIA shares closed up about 3% on Tuesday. Just four other U.S. companies are currently worth more than $1 trillion. Apple, Alphabet, Microsoft, and Amazon. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And after the break, North Korea fails to launch a satellite meant to spy on the United States. But Pyongyang says it's not giving up on the plan. Europe wants to be a leader for green energy, but its dependence on rare earth minerals from China could undermine the plan. We'll have the details for you in just a minute. Welcome back. North Korea's first spy satellite launch ended in failure today after the space rocket crashed into the sea. The newly developed Cholima-1 rocket was supposed to put the satellite in orbit to keep watch on U.S. military activities. In an unusually candid admission of a technical failure by the North, state media KCNA reported the rocket plunged into the sea because of instability in the engine and fuel system. Neighboring South Korea said it had recovered what is believed to be parts of the space launch vehicle including this large cylindrical object attached to the buoy. Seoul's Joint Chiefs of Staff said the projectile fell into waters near the southwestern island of Ocheongdo. The north satellite launch triggered air raid sirens and brief evacuation warnings in parts of South Korea and Japan. The notices were withdrawn with no danger or damage reported. Eleanor Shiori Hughes, a non-resident fellow at Econview, a Chicago-based think tank, says there appears to be a sense of complacency among residents in South Korea and Japan. I, I, I feel like every time in this case, if we're talking about North Korea, every time that North Korea fires a missile of some sort and there is possibility that it may either fly over Hokkaido or be in, uh, landing within like Japan's EEZ, territorial waters, whatever, um, that People, I'm not entirely sure people, how serious the Japanese people in this case or Korean people or South Korean people will take when it comes to like following um, guidance from authorities. Japan's foreign ministry said it held a phone call with officials from the U.S. and South Korea, during which all three countries strongly condemned the North's latest launch and agreed to stay vigilant with high sense of urgency. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres also condemned the satellite launch. But North Korea remains defiant and is reportedly planning to conduct a second launch as soon as possible. While the European Union is pushing for sustainable energy, European wind turbine manufacturers have a cautionary tale about relying on China's rare earth minerals. And to these France correspondent David Vives talked to a policy analyst who says China has EU countries backed against the wall. The Netherlands trade minister on Sunday said that Europe won't be able to transition away from fossil fuels without China. G7 leaders last week agreed to de-risk their relationship with China by importing critical raw materials from other countries, while European Union ministers on Friday backed a similar policy adjustment. European manufacturers are concerned it may not work out. Author and policy analyst Fabien Bouglet says 
Denmark's iconic turbine manufacturer Vestas is the perfect example. Denmark is in a lot of trouble because the main western wind turbine manufacturers will soon be unable to produce any more wind turbines because of this tension on the rare earths market controlled by China. The world's top three turbine manufacturers all suffered heavy losses in 2022. Vestas lost $1.68 billion, General Electric $2 billion, and Siemens Energy $950 million. Bouglé says this is due to China's monopoly over rare earth minerals. China has done the same thing with solar panels. You can buy Chinese solar panels, but China has imposed a ban on all materials used in the construction of solar panels. In other words, you can no longer buy the raw materials used to build solar panels or the raw materials used to build wind turbines, especially rare earth minerals, which are crucial because they are difficult to obtain, especially for offshore wind turbines. It's a geopolitical weapon. Above all, the aim is to be the leader. They've become the world leader in solar panel production. They've acquired the market, and now they want to become the world leader in the manufacture of wind turbines. China is expected to supply the majority of rare earth minerals for turbines this year. In other words, Europe will be more dependent than ever on China to get the materials. Bouglé says it's very likely the EU won't be able to develop sustainable energy by relying on China. You can see that, on the one hand, we have an extremely strong lobby pushing for an energy transition in Europe. But on the other hand, we also have an economic war by China, which wants to impose the sale of its own wind turbines. And in any case, at the rate things are going, we have, as China doesn't want to export materials either, to allow competitors to design and manufacture its wind turbines. Europe is unlikely to succeed in developing a renewable energy industry in the next 10 years. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. China, the world's second largest economy, is emerging from three years of pandemic lockdowns, but the recovery has been uneven. Analysts are forecasting slower Chinese economic growth this year. Here's more. China's economic recovery is showing signs of weakness. Economic indicators from last month paint a picture of its pandemic rebound that is losing steam and underperforming. Here's economist Samuel Gregg from the American Institute for Economic Research. We need to keep in mind just how hard locked down the Chinese economy and Chinese people were during uh, the COVID pandemic. It's just not that easy to bounce back from that really quickly. Data shows China's factory activity contracted faster than expected this month. And last month, Chinese imports contracted sharply, property investment slumped, and industrial profits plunged. On top of that, retail sales are down and domestic demand has been sluggish. Here's chief strategist Brian McCarthy from economic advisory firm MacroLens. The level of spending is somewhat disappointing. Uh, There's still a very low level of economic optimism, high unemployment in China, and structural issues are still weighing on the Chinese consumer. We see deep declines in Chinese profitability in the manufacturing sector, uh, very slow nominal growth in Chinese manufacturing. A number of Western countries are facing prospects of a possible recession and credit is becoming harder to get. That's going to weigh even more on the Chinese economy. McCarthy says that during periods of tightening global liquidity, China always struggles. The real growth engine in China is domestic investment. 
China is struggling with the end of its investment-led growth model, infrastructure projects, which was supposed to increase local growth and tax revenues by a certain amount. It hasn't happened. Um, they just they don't have the income and they just can't continue. Analysts are now downgrading their expectations for the Chinese economy. Financial institutions like Nomura and Barclays are both cutting China's 2023 GDP growth forecasts. The Department of Justice has charged two suspected Chinese agents for targeting the spiritual group Falun Gong in the U.S. It involves an alleged bribery scheme to strip a nonprofit run by Falun Gong practitioners of its tax-exempt status. We hear from an organization that for years has been documenting the persecution and targeting of Falun Gong adherents by the CCP in China and around the world. Joining us now is Ben Maloney with the Falun Dafa Information Center. Ben, thank you so much for coming on to touch on this important topic. Yeah, thanks for having me. And we know Falun Gong is persecuted in China, but what does this say about the regime's efforts to export that repression to the West? Yeah, exactly. I think uh, this is one of the ways that we've proven that there's transnational repression happening, which is basically the Chinese Communist Party extending their tentacles uh, to the U.S. and even globally to try to control dissidents and their message worldwide uh, in terms of, you know, that sometimes that's violence, sometimes that's just coercion like we saw with this case. And the DOJ says the two men, John Chen and Lin Fung, submitted a whistleblower complaint to an IRS office in Windsor, New, New Windsor, New York. They promised to pay an undercover agent posing as a whistleblower $50,000 to open this audit on the Falun Gong entity. What does this say about the lengths the CCP will go to crush dissidents? Yeah, if you think about it, the, you know, this was under the direction of the CCP in, in China. They proved that. The DOJ approved that. And so why would the Chinese Communist Party care about a nonprofit in the U.S.? I mean, they care because it shows that any sort of dissidence, any sort of anyone that's going to speak up against the CCP, whether it's in China or abroad, is at risk of, of having them try to suppress them. And so I think this case kind of proves the lengths they'll go. I mean, it's pretty audacious, right? to go and bribe a, a government official and fly from L.A. to New York all those times, uh, I mean, it's pretty audacious. So if this is what we found out about, uh, I kind of wonder what else is going on we don't know about. Right, exactly. So if this is happening to the Falun Gong by the CCP, what else should Americans be concerned about here? Yeah, well, I think, you know, Falun Gong is, is very much like a canary in the coal mine for what the Chinese Communist Party, I believe, intends for the world. If you look at what they did in China, Falun Gong was 100 million strong in 99, one out of every 13 people. So it's very, you know, and what they did to their own citizens there was torture, jailing, forced organ harvesting, you know, mass imprisonment. And so when you look at what they do to peaceful citizens and the fact that they've exported that, you know, as we've proven with this case, the United States, what do you think their intentions are for the world, for anyone that speaks against them, for a company that does something against them, for individuals, whether that's Falun Gong related or not? this is the lengths they're willing to go. And these are just peaceful people. They just live by truthfulness, compassion, forbearance, according to their text. So this is, this is outright an atrocity. And in light of this indictment to these individuals, Representative Dan Newhouse is saying that this is an example of how the CCP is trying to turn the U.S. into a, quote, hunting ground for dissidents. So what's really going on here? Yeah, if you look at uh, a related story, like last month, they um, arrested and charged uh, a couple individuals, I believe, with these kind of secret police stations that were operating in the United States, in New York City, where, where the Chinese Communist Party was basically policing 
policing in the U.S. in a way. The CCP had agents. And the, the individual that was arrested in that had very, very close ties to a lot of anti-Falun Gong things over the years because they do the bidding of the CCP through front agencies or other things. That was just a few months ago. And if you look at the forced organ harvesting bill that went through, uh, that passed the legislature uh, recently, the uh, representative that was uh, in charge of that got an angry email from a consulate member, the CCP member, saying, how dare you pass this, you know, Falun Gong's this and that. So these are just a few, three incidents in the past month of interference to U.S. lawmakers in New York City, to <laughs> trying to bribe IRS agents. Though all three are related to Falun Gong, but all three show a pretty clear pattern of what the CCP is doing in the United States. Well, thanks for shedding light on this. Ben Maloney, Falun Dafa Information Center, it's always great to hear from you. Thanks for having me. Coming up, the U.S. urges Turkey to approve Sweden's NATO bid now. After the recent election, Turkey's president may ease his objections. British pubs are in danger of slowly dying out, but local communities are coming to the rescue. We'll have that story for you after the break. Good to have you back. We're heading to Southeast Europe with some updates on the tense situation in Kosovo. Hundreds of ethnic Serbs protested today in the north of the country, days after clashes that injured 30 NATO peacekeepers and over 50 Serbs. Serbian protesters say they want ethnic Albanian officials to withdraw from northern Kosovo. NATO troops have been gathered in response to the latest violence in the region. The military alliance plans to send 700 more soldiers to boost its 4,000-strong mission. Unrest in the region intensified after elections last month. These saw ethnic Albanian mayors take office in the country's northern Serb-majority area. Ethnic Serbs had boycotted the elections. French President Emmanuel Macron said responsibility for the unrest also lies with Kosovo officials. He and German Chancellor Olaf Scholz are set to meet with the leaders of Serbia and Kosovo tomorrow. The U.S. is urging Turkey to immediately finalize Sweden's accession to NATO. Meanwhile, the NATO head said he's optimistic the bid can be completed by July. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said on Tuesday it's time now for Turkey to stop its objections to Sweden joining NATO. There is no reason for any further uh, time. Sweden is ready now. That decision should, be, uh, should move forward now. He said the Nordic country had already taken significant steps to address Ankara's objections to its membership. He spoke alongside the Swedish Prime Minister on a visit to northern Sweden. Blinken rejected the idea of a link between Turkey's decision and the sale of F-16 fighter jets to Ankara. But President Biden alluded to it on Monday in Washington. I spoke to Erdogan. Oh, yes. I congratulated Erdogan. And uh, he... Uh, he still wants to work on something on the F-15s. I told him we wanted to deal with Sweden until I get that done. Fresh from a re-election victory over the weekend, Turkey's president may ease his objections to the Nordic country's membership. He accuses Sweden of being too soft on groups Ankara considers to be terrorists. NATO leader Jens Stoltenberg said Tuesday he's optimistic. There are no guarantees, but it's absolutely possible uh, to uh, uh, to reach a solution and to and, uh, and to enable uh, 
the decision on full membership for Sweden by the Vilnius summit. The Vilnius summit is a major NATO summit in Lithuania, taking place in July. NATO is looking for a new leader to replace Jens Stoltenberg later this year, but the intense debate taking place behind closed doors has yielded no clear frontrunner. Behind closed doors in Europe and North America, in capitals and in military headquarters, there is an intense debate unfolding. Who should become the next leader of the NATO military alliance? But while Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg is expected to step down in September and a replacement could be named as early as July, there are many names being put forward and no obvious frontrunner. So who are some of them and what's the debate? Jamie Shea is with the Chatham House think tank in London and a former NATO spokesperson. There's no shortage of, of, of possible candidates, uh, many women, uh, uh, Women names are, are being suggested, and as NATO has never had a female secretary general before, uh, I think in terms of you know, conveying the impression of a 21st century alliance attuned to modern society, uh, it's high time that the secretary general of NATO should be a woman, uh, as has been the case uh, with so many other international organizations. Um, of course, uh, countries like in Central and Eastern Europe uh, that have been in NATO for some time already and are playing a big role in uh, the current collective defense on the eastern flank, they may well feel it's our time to have the job uh, as, as well. Diplomatic sources say the names being discussed include Denmark's prime minister, Meta Fredriksen. She says she hasn't officially applied for the job, but regardless, she's emerged as one of the bigger contenders. At 45, she was the country's youngest prime minister when she was elected and won praise for her crisis management during the COVID pandemic. But she'd have to step down as prime minister, which might create political turmoil at home. And her country's military spending is also well below the 2% of GDP that NATO has as its guideline, although she's said she wants to boost it. In Eastern Europe, Estonia's prime minister, Kaya Kalas, has been discussed. She's also 45 and was the first woman elected as prime minister there. But some members see Kalas as too hawkish on Russia. In the United Kingdom, its secretary of defense, Ben Wallace, has put his own name forward. He's highly respected across the alliance, a member of parliament and also a former military officer. But some European Union countries, such as France, want a NATO leader from within the EU. Many also prefer a candidate that used to be a president or prime minister. Stoltenberg himself is the former leader of Norway. Diplomats told Reuters that Wallace may be a long shot. And my sense, given the role of NATO today, the importance of NATO today, um, the allies will be looking for somebody who is a serving prime minister, uh, because uh, a prime minister uh, really has the, the contacts, the address book, the ability to make immediate phone calls to presidents and prime ministers, both in the NATO countries and beyond, which are geared to the kind of high level diplomacy that NATO is now carrying out. There are other names being discussed, but there is also another angle. Some diplomats predict that many candidates would be deemed unacceptable to NATO members Turkey and Hungary, who are often at odds with the other allies over key issues.
Turkey and Hungary are blocking Sweden's attempt to join NATO right now. In the end, Stoltenberg may be asked to stay on in his role to keep a united front in the face of war. A court in eastern Germany has sentenced a woman to five years and three months in prison for a series of attacks on neo-Nazis. The student was convicted of membership in a criminal organization and causing serious bodily harm. Prosecutors argued she conceived of the idea of the attacks and helped to carry them out. In one such incident in 2020, about 15 or 20 assailants beat a group of six people returning from a ceremony marking the 75th anniversary of the firebombing of Dresden. Prosecutors said several victims sustained serious injuries after being punched, kicked, and hit with batons. Three accomplices were sentenced to up to 39 months in prison. In the UK, communities are stepping up to save their pubs from closing down. Pubs are often the neighborhood's front room and the soul of the community. And today's Jane Whirl has more for us on the rise of community-owned pubs. For decades, the number of British pubs have been on a steady decline. But community-owned pubs are bucking this trend. King Charles I in London is one such pub. Residents saved it from developers in 2015, and now it's owned and run by 18 shareholders. The simplest thing was to try and raise the money between us to, to be able to buy the leasehold, which is what we did. Like many neighbourhood pubs, this is a space that Sue and Barman Simon call their front room. If anybody local comes in here and they need anything, like moving a fridge or anything like that, you know, we'll pee out there straight away helping. And So it really is a proper community space. We have people that come in here, you know, and they're very quiet, they don't speak necessarily, and gradually they are sort of brought into the, the whole society of, of, the, of the local and they've become really chatty. Although the number of community-owned pubs are small compared to mainstream ones at around 170 in the UK, it's a business model that works. Being very responsive to the community's needs has made them resilient. They have a sense of ownership of it. It's their pub and therefore the pub attracts a loyalty that most businesses can only dream of. The Plunkett Foundation, which helps people with community-led ventures, says the sector is growing steadily, with some pubs looking at different services they can provide for the neighbourhood. Even in challenging times marked by pandemic lockdowns and record energy costs, customers are more likely to keep coming back. The customers are still remaining committed to supporting these businesses because they are members. They, they, you know, they, they, they are involved in the project and they want to see it flourish over a long term. A cultural symbol of Britain, the pub means a lot more than just having a pint. Jane Worrell, NTD News, London. Just ahead, vets in Australia work at a mobile care unit that exclusively treats wildlife. With so many species in the country, they never know what they'll see next. Stay tuned for that right here on NTD News. Welcome back. Two animal lovers in Sydney, Australia, have set up a mobile care unit that exclusively treats wildlife in a country home to hundreds of thousands of animal species. Entity's Andrew Thomas has more on the wild vets. These two little possum joeys need a bit of special care. Fortunately, they've been brought to the Sydney Metropolitan Wildlife Service's mobile care unit. 
The volunteer vets here think it's a better option than bringing them to a regular facility. If someone finds an animal that's injured, they can take it to a vet clinic and it can get that basic care. Um, but it, uh, it can be very difficult because these vet clinics are, you know, they're not set up to see wildlife. They are usually set up to see dogs and cats. Since January 2000, the charity has operated from the specially converted van. The vehicle has an x-ray machine, blood testing equipment, an ultrasound machine, and more. There are eight vets who regularly volunteer here. Once they get involved, it becomes a bit of an obsession. We've got a little group chat with the vets, and that's on all the time. 10 o'clock at night on a Saturday, um, we'll get a, a message from one of the vets. Oh, what do you guys think? You know, you know that little possum that came in? Everyone's like, which one? Uh, Rocky, you know, Rocky came in, he had this collarboma in his eye. What, what do you think? There are hundreds of thousands of animal species in Australia. Some aren't the most cooperative patients. We've had a brush-tailed possum boying out and run across all, you know, run across the, the table and, and whatnot. So yeah, luckily all our stuff is bolted down. <laughs> Unfortunately, human activity is one of the main causes of animal injuries. So whether that's directly, you know, animals being hit by cars, um, being attacked by dogs or cats, uh, fishing line uh, and fish hook ingestion, entanglement. Uh, so those are the things that we see a lot. The team plans to add an all-terrain vehicle soon to reach injured animals in difficult locations. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Some tense moments at a beauty pageant. A man rushed onto the stage and snatched a crown during the pageant awarding ceremony in Brazil on Saturday. The pageant wrote on Instagram the man was the runner-up's partner. The pageant added that appropriate legal measures would be taken. Video shows the man running on stage before Emanuele Bellini was crowned the winner. The man is seen snatching the crown and throwing it on the ground before walking away with his partner and throwing the crown on the stage once again. That's all for today's program. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.